Thanks for your interest in Emmanuel Baptist. Here at Emmanuel, we believe in the one and only authoritative text for guidance, the Holy Bible. We pray that this sermon will speak to your heart and open your eyes to the glory of God. Make sure you plug into your local church and get to know others that love the Holy Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just like you. Thanks again, and God bless you guys. If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. We're going to be looking at chapter 11, 1 through 6, and we will be looking at chapter 12, 5 through 10, actually. If you came in, you probably uh, saw out on the vestibule some outline of the message. Some of the basic principles are there, two pages. And then there was another page that contains the Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 and 10. It's kind of a flowery embellishment of this passage. It's one that's familiar to us, which will be some of what we're talking about today. Uh, I actually borrowed this off of somebody else's page on the computer, and I liked the way it was dressed up. It was colorful. I just printed it off in black and white, so, you know, you can color it if you want to. So, if you will, allow me to read out loud with you on this passage, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, which is the heart of our text today. These words, um, the Apostle Paul are giving to the church at Corinth. And he said unto me, referring to the Lord, My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distress. For Christ's sake, when I am weak, then I am, then I am strong. The title of the message today is His Power is Best Shown in Our Weakness. That's a hard concept for us to wrap our minds around because that's not consistent with what the culture teaches us all the time. Most of the time, we evaluate things based on numbers or physical strength or some kind of measurement that's visible to our eyes. That's the culture. That's the logic of the human psyche. But that's not the way God looks at things. Our fighter verse this morning expressed God's ability to see through the darkness and be present even when we couldn't see, he can. I like what C.S. Lewis wrote when he talks about pain and suffering and weakness. In his book, The Problem with Pain, he wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. As much noise as there is in our culture today and in the world around us, it's deaf as a doornail, spiritually speaking, because it does not hear the voice of God. 
doesn't know what the voice of God sounds like in many ways. It brings me back to a situation when I was several years ago in LaGrange pumping gas at my gas station. I'm pumping my gas and I've got <clears throat> Christian music on, which is kind of soft and gentle, flowing. And this dude rides up on the other side of the gas pumps and he leaves his windows down, his door open as he's pumping, and he's got rap music. And he's got it turned up about 50 decibels above my music. And I'm thinking, whoo, wow, I couldn't hear a thing. My flesh first said, I can't hear what God's trying to say to me through his music. I believe I'll go over and turn mine wide open and compete with him. That was my flesh, folks. That was not <laughs> the Spirit of God saying that. I'm just telling you, we want to sometimes react that way. Because we think that competition, and we think that our strength and our abilities and our gifts, and what we have that we can measure is sometimes the thing that makes us strong. And it's not. God says it's not. Your real strength is me. And until you recognize that, uh, you're not going to be very strong in my sight. So today as we move forward with where we're going as a church, we need to understand that God's power is best shown in our weakness as a Christian individual, as a church family. And you can see the numbers. You know what's going on. We're weak. We're very weak. So we're asking God to show up in his power. A Christian soldier in Desert Storm one time said, Safety does not rest in our distance from danger, but in our nearness to God. I love that. That is so true. Sometimes we want to distance ourselves from danger. We think we're safe if we can get away from the hurricanes and the tornadoes and things that are in our power to control but distance from danger does not keep us safe it's nearness to God and his power that keeps us safe I have a friend Bill Sweeney who was in desert storm he's a pastor now in West Virginia and he said he was as safe in in desert storm as any place he'd ever been he was closer to God than he had ever been and he didn't feel at all threatened by the bullets and the IUDs. He says, if, he, if I blow up or if I get shot, it was God's will. He says, my safest place is in his arms in close walk with him. And I agree with him. So when God interrupts our lives with trouble, how are we going to handle it? When pain and sorrow and fear raise their heads and people cross the room and stare at us and look directly at us, who are we going to turn to for help? Today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture in the New Testament for some modeled principles to us. Our speaker is going to be the Apostle Paul as he speaks. We want to consider some of the things he's saying as we face our pain and our sorrow, our troubles, our feelings of inadequacy and weakness. And believe you me, I feel inadequate. I feel very weak. These principles hopefully will help us and remind us that God is our source of strength. As we sang on the songs previous to this, I couldn't help but think of 
several passages of scriptures that these songs are based upon. Isaiah 40, 31, but those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The word renew is the word exchange. So what is he saying? What's Isaiah saying? Those who wait and trust upon the Lord shall exchange their weakness for his strength. Literally, in Hebrew, renew means exchange. That's a pretty good deal when you stop to think about it. We have the opportunity to come to an almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent God and exchange our weaknesses for his strength. And that's what we sing about, what we know to be true. So let's, first of all, look at 2 Corinthians. Let's start with chapter 11 to give a context for where we're going to go in chapter 12. We're going to read the first six verses of chapter 11. Let me bring this up on mine. 2 Corinthians 11, begin with verse 1, if the internet works with me on this. Remember, as we get started, Paul here in 2 Corinthians 11, these first six verses, he's defending his credentials to the church at Corinth as one who's been sent from God. That word, one sent from God, that phrase is translated apostle, one who's actually sent from God authoritatively. Not with a resume of degrees, does he say this, nor by dropping names of influential people that he knows, or by mighty deeds that he's done, but by a list of things that might appear on a rap sheet of a prisoner. He was very reluctant to approach it this way, even to address this issue with the local church at Corinth. After all, it should have been evident to them. They should have been discerning Christians to know that the spirit of this man, Apostle Paul, who had led them to Christ, certainly was sent by God. And yet... They were being deceived by these false teachers, these quote-unquote super apostles, as we'll read here, these super apostles who spoke highly of themselves and had their degrees uh, out in front and spoke fluently and with great charisma, and they were deceiving the people with a different gospel than what Paul had shared in simplicity and in his weakness. So Paul is speaking from his heart, and he's warning these Corinthian believers from his heart. He says, I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, that's Christ, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as <clears throat> the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. 
Let's digest this a little bit, what Paul is saying here as he's getting to this part where God reveals to the church this principle of power being revealed, his power being revealed in our weakness. In verse 2, we just read here, Paul recognizes that his jealousy for their hearts and souls is because it was placed there by God. I'm going to tell you as a pastor, that has to be part of a man's calling. If he doesn't love Christ and do, and do what he does for Christ, he won't love the people. He loved the people. He loved them because God had done a work in them. And he was jealous over the fact that other people were coming in and telling them lies about Christ and a different gospel, a different way, that you can work your way to heaven, you can be good, you can do all these things but you don't need grace, Paul says that's an out-and-out sham. It's deceitfulness. It comes from the pit of hell. It comes from Satan. Just as any husband would be jealous of another man trying to steal his bride, Christ is jealous for his bride in Corinth. He's jealous for his bride here. Who's being seduced by Satan and his false prophets. Paul considers himself the Friend of the bridegroom, most of us have been to weddings, you know there's a best man and there's a matron of honor at the wedding ceremonies, best man is the friend of the bridegroom, this is a betrothal metaphor, in that culture people would betroth to be married and it was as if they were married for a good bit of time until the man went home and prepared the house and got it ready for his wife when he married her to take her home to this home that had been added on to his father's house. And so this betrothal process is what he's showing here that Paul says, I am the bride, I am the friend of the bridegroom. I am the friend of Christ. One interesting cultural thing about <clears throat> the friend of the bridegroom in that day and time, when a bride wanted to speak to the bridegroom during that betrothal period or vice versa, they didn't speak directly to each other. They didn't call each other up on the phone or text each other. They called the friend of the bridegroom, and they said, would you go tell my bridegroom this or that? Would you go tell my bride this or that? The bridegroom was the messenger boy. And so Paul says, I am the friend of the bridegroom. I'm the messenger boy to you, his bride, at the church at Corinth. So what I'm saying is a heart out of a heart of love that Christ has for you, out of my love for you, and I'm telling you this message, and I'm concerned Christ is jealous over you and what's happening by you being deceived with false teachers. In verse 3, Paul says that he has two legitimate concerns for the bride of Christ at, church, at Corinth. First of all, he knows that Satan is a master at deception, which is evidenced by Eve's deception by Satan in the Garden of Eden. Number two, he's also legitimately concerned because of their readiness to accept another Jesus, a different spirit, and a different message than the message that saved them in the beginning when he was speaking to them. If you notice in verse um, four of what we just read, he says, 
For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel than one you've accepted, you put up with it readily enough. In other words, you tolerate it. You let it go on. I'm concerned, Paul says, that you let these false prophets tell you something that's no is not true. That's not the message that you heard. That's not the gospel that you heard. That's not the Jesus that we described, that we demonstrated in our lives when we were there with you. I'm concerned. Jesus is concerned. He's jealous over his bride. Verses 5 through 6, Paul boldly reassures them that his message was authentic message of God and his plan of salvation. What is that, folks? If you go back and you remember what our pastor John had taught us in these previous months about the essentials of the, of the sola, the essentials of the Reformation, what were they? By grace alone. That means not by works, not something we merit or earn. It's by grace that we're saved. Through faith alone, through faith alone, not something you can see, but something you believe that God will keep his promise about. In Christ alone, no other person, not in your cells or my cells or the church or baptism, but in Christ alone, through the scriptures alone, not the Book of Mormons, not the Pearl of Great Price, not Jehovah's Witnesses' doctrinal books, not any other religion or cultural document that says it's authoritative only the scriptures because they are god breathed for what purpose the glory of god alone those are the five five basic things paul taught that to them this is the same message we have today it's true paul's carrying this message from the bridegroom christ to the bride at corinth and basically he's saying be alert discerning concern Concerning the truth of the gospel of Christ, be sure you understand what it is and that you don't tolerate people veering off from that. In verse 6, Paul admits that he came to them with this message as an unskilled speaker. I can relate, Paul. I'm an unskilled speaker, and I know that. Paul was an unskilled speaker. I have seen guys speak that, man, they knew how to put sentences and words together like you wouldn't believe. These tele-infomercials, uh, uh, they just amaze me at how they can string phrases and lines together and try to convince people. And, man, by the time they get through with the infomercial, I've got my wallet out, I've got my credit card out, I've got the phone out, I'm ready to order that thing. When I get it, it's not nearly what I thought it was because he sold me a bill of goods. To the church at Rome, Paul said basically the same thing. He says, it wasn't with clever words or gimmicks that I used to sell the gospel to you. It was my love for Christ, my weakness, my vulnerability, my faith in the power of God to save you that caused me to not be ashamed of this wonderful, amazing, good news of salvation that God's put together for you. So that's basically how we introduce this and thinking about this is where Paul's coming from as we get to our chapter 12 passage. He wants to remind them that he has credentials too. He's as qualified and credentialed as these super apostles, as they call themselves, who were discrediting the apostle Paul, his credentials, 
and his weakness and his frailty and his inabilities, but they can't discredit the message because the message is the important thing, and that's what Paul's reflecting on here. Later on in this chapter 11, in verse 7, he talks about his humility before them. In verses 8 and 9, he says, You know, when I was with you, I made it a point not to be a burden to you. I didn't lay up in your house. I didn't eat your food. I didn't do anything but make you feel a burden, me feel a burden for you to take care of. I didn't do that. Doesn't that sound like Christ? And look, we have to be careful we don't do that for one another. He, he spoke on in verses 10 and 11 about his love for them that caused him to not give up on them. That's why he's back here with this letter anyway. He talks about, in verses 12 through 15, the hypocrisy of these super apostles, these people who are not like Christ at all in manner or speech or anything. They're just trying to have a power base and to use these people and to use their resources. I know people like that. I've seen these charlatans. You have too on TV. Makes my skin crawl. Makes my skin crawl when I hear Tilton, Benny Hinn, and some of the others I could name. But I'm just telling you, they're out there. They'll deceive you. They have a good game. They talk a good game. But it's not the game that's going to win a person's soul to Christ nor give them eternal life. In verses 24 through 29, he gives this laundry list. I won't read them all, but it's persecution, suffering, hardship, one after another. He just lists them all. He says, let me ask you something. Did they do that? Did they suffer like that for the cause of the gospel in Christ? He says, that's what I boast in. I boast in the power of God to keep on delivering me, to keep on picking me up, to keep on moving me forward, and to give me the strength to serve him one more day. I boast in the things that show my weakness. Verse 30 of chapter 11, he says, I boast in the things that show my weakness. You want to boast in something? Boast in your weakness and God's power. Brag about God being able to keep on picking you up, keep on enabling you, keep on moving you forward and delivering you from all the things that you're facing, all the grief that you have, the sorrow of your heart, the things that you don't understand. Boast in the fact that God is an almighty God who loves you. In reality, Paul is very wise to use this approach because the greatest test of a true servant of God is in his humility and his weakness, his vulnerability, and his track record in suffering for the sake of the gospel. When we hear people express confidence in their abilities and their gifts, their experiences, the programs and education, then we should be wary. When we see people express little self-confidence in themselves and great confidence in the Lord's ability to use them as a surrendered vessel, then we should probably continue to watch them and to listen. Later in chapter 12, Paul goes on to tell about how God took him to heaven and gave him great revelation that no man has seen. And to keep him so and to keep him humble, he gave him a thorn in the flesh to keep him from boasting in spiritual pride. So turn over to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 at this point. 
Let's look at verses 5 through 10. I want to make a point about this before we start in verse 5. There's movies that are out about people dying and going to heaven and coming back. Children, some of them. Sounds good. Sounds real good. I'm real wary about that. I can't say what they experienced or what they perceived that they experienced. I can't. But I know what the scriptures say, and that is the final authority. When people talk about that and they sell millions of books and movies and make millions of dollars off the fact that they had this experience of going to heaven, a red flag goes up for me. Because not, not, that's not consistent with Paul. He went to heaven, and yet he realizes that he's not approaching the church on the fact of his experience with God, his elevated supernatural experience where he was in the very present, saw things he could not even talk about. And he recognizes that God gave him a thorn in the flesh because he needed to stay humble <clears throat> on, first, on verse 5, let's read this together. Five reasons that God allows the Apostle Paul and any other believer to suffer are kind of depicted here. Reasons. Number one, to reveal our spiritual condition. Verse 5 says, On behalf of this man I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. That doesn't make sense. Look, read, you read that until cows come home. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Unless you understand what Paul is saying about his spiritual man and his carnal man. On behalf of this man, he's referring to himself. I will boast. If I was a physical man and I didn't have the Spirit of Christ in me and this direction from Him, I would be willing to boast about what I saw. It'd really make me look good in the eyes of you if, you, if I could describe all the things that I saw and experienced. How many times have you heard people do that? They're super spiritual because of their experience with God. What does that do to everybody else who hadn't had that experience? It makes them second-class Christians, don't it? Why hadn't you had that experience? Well, you're just not as spiritual as me. He goes on and says, but on my behalf, the real spiritual me, the one who it has a stake in reality, he says, I will not boast except of my weakness. So there it is. There's the principle being repeated. Verse 6, though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. In other words, Paul is saying the real me is what you get on an everyday basis. How I treat people, how I talk, and so forth. This passage really shows Paul's attempt to be honest and transparent with these believers about his relationship with Christ and the authority that he's been granted to speak for God. Not because he's special, but because God has empowered him and entrusted him with the message of Christ. <laughs> I laugh because sometimes I've talked to people who are on pastoral search committees. 
uh, I talked to a church recently that was looking at it for a pastor, and they had over 300 resumes, over 300 resumes. And a comment was made, most of them were a joke. What's written on a resume is most often the very best a man can be in the eyes of the world and probably the very worst he can be in the eyes of God. That's a quote from me, not anybody else. Resumes don't really tell who a person really is. And that's what these super apostles were doing. They were giving their resumes. Paul says, I don't have a resume except that I've suffered a lot and I am suffering. He could have bragged. He was a smart dude. Trained under Gamaliel, the top-notch Pharisee of the day. He could read, he had memorized at least five or six books of the Old Testament were verbatim. He could quote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He could quote those to you and lots of other passages. He was a smart man. He knew the scriptures. He could have done that, but he didn't. He didn't use his resume. He used the power of God. And there's a principle for us to remember. If we're going to communicate to other people about the truth of the gospel, who Jesus is and what salvation is, we have to be consistent with trusting the authority of scriptures not our experiences not our education when looking for a spiritual leader for the church it's essential that he is not just a professional with training and degrees but truly a man called by christ to speak for him if you will a friend of the bridegroom one who will represent him in character and be true to his gospel message So, number two, the second reason that the Apostle Paul says that we have to suffer sometimes, appointed by God, verse 7, to 6 and 7, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a, th- excuse me, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. To keep me from becoming conceited. There it is. I laugh because that word thorn is not what I had the other day. Still got it right here. Uh, I was out in the yard working. I got this little briar thing in here and it's nuisance to me. It just keeps aggravating me. I'm trying to get it out. I got to get down to it and get a pen. But the word thorn here is not that. It's the word stake. There's a lot of difference in a thorn and a stake. I'm talking about Stakes are pretty big, piece of wood. Thorns are a little teeny thing. God gave Paul a stake in the flesh, not a thorn. Something that really was painful, really harassed him. A messenger of Satan. Satan often is the messenger boy of God. And many times he's the one behind your pain and suffering, just like he was Job's. But he only has to, he can only do that if he has permission from God. So whatever emotional, stressful, physical, psychological pain that we go through, many times God allows Satan to be the messenger boy and to harass us. But there's an outcome of this that actually is for our benefit and for God's glory. And we have to keep it in mind as Paul does. So often people love to be recognized for their humble, for their knowledge, as if Paul had gone to heaven and if that had happened to me, I'm, I don't know what I would have done. Hopefully I would respond as Paul did. 
but people sometimes they want to tell other people they really have a hard time not disclosing to other people how much they're suffering how humble they are how giving they are how gracious they are they they have a hard time not telling people i'm really going through a lot i'm sacrificing a lot i'm giving a lot really what does that say more than anything else, it reveals who they're actually doing it for. Paul had plenty of credentials to brag about. Certainly having these experiences of visiting heaven was a big one. Can you imagine what those who brag about their experiences would do with this? Some of them do brag about it. I'm not sure it is it happened. But he knew that if he bragged about who he was and what he had done and what he had seen... It would be putting the spotlight on himself instead of Christ. And that's why he accepted this stake in the flesh as God's way of protecting him from his own pride, from his own conceit. And I'm going to tell you, spiritual pride is the deadliest of it all. And it can happen to any of us. Pastors are the most subject to it. Leaders in the church are most subject to it. I don't know what Billy Graham went through in his life, but I can tell you this. I'm sure he had a lot of temptations. Because he was a man who preached the gospel. He was humble. He stayed humble as far as I know. But I'm sure he was harassed by Satan. God is a sovereign God over all things. And he will use whatever methods that he chooses to keep his servants humbly focused on him and his glory. Third principle here in verse 8. Third reason that God sometimes lets us as Christians suffer is to draw us closer to him. When you don't have somebody else to turn to, when you have no other resources, when you don't know somebody who has an answer to fix your problems, then who are you going to turn to? Are you going to call ghostbusters? You know the theme. Some of you are sneaking because you know what I'm talking about. Huh? Who are you going to call? <laughs> well, the kids might think that's funny, and I think it's funny too, but the real reality of the spiritual life is we're going to call on the one who can help us. That is our rock, our Savior. Three times I pleaded with the Lord, Paul says, about this, that it should leave me. Three times. Paul drew to God, near to God for comfort in his pain. He rolled up his burdens. He handed them over onto God, understanding that it was up to God to answer his request, however he chose. How easy is it to do that for us to really hand it over to God? Sometimes we want to get rid of the pain and the suffering. We pray that way. Lord, ease my pain. Lord, take this away. Lord, do this. Lord, do that. We forget sometimes it's God's tool in our lives to keep us dependent on him, to draw us closer to him. It is a messenger of God sent through the enemy of our soul, Satan. To the degree that we can accept pain and suffering like Paul did without complaining and resenting God's ways, we reveal our spiritual maturity. 
and our love for him. It doesn't hurt to pray for our will to be done, as Paul did in here three times, and as Christ did in the garden. If it's your will, remove this cup from me, Christ said. As long as we conclude with the, not necessarily the words, but the attitude, nevertheless, thy will be done. I don't want to get into formulas here, but when you pray a prayer that's an urgent prayer of relief from pain and suffering and agony and frustration, and you cry out to God, you have to also understand at the same time that God is a sovereign God. He may be actually having that in your life and in my life for a reason, to humble us, to draw us closer, to make us dependent on him. And somewhere in the back of your mind, you better say, if it's your will. And if it's not your will, give me the strength to keep on keeping on. Fourth reason that God does this, have suffering and pain in our lives, is to allow his grace to be on display in our lives. Verse 9, but he said to me, that being Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Of course, grace is that word that comes from charis. It comes from the idea of a free gift. Not many of us think of suffering and pain as being a gift, but many times it is from God's perspective, a gift. Difficulties is a gift. <laughs> really? That's just not the way we think as humans. But grace, by and large, is something that God gives us freely even though we don't deserve it. Really, if you want to get right down to it, we really don't deserve God giving us that much attention. But he does. He knows how we are made in our mother's womb. He fashioned that DNA coding together in such a way he knows your every nuance of attitude and action and gift. He knows that about you. And he knows how to plan on keeping you secure in his relationship with you. We don't deserve grace at salvation. But it's given, without, it's given without any strings being attached. It reflects the nature of God, and it speaks of his free nature to love unconditionally. We're saved by grace. We live by grace. We die by grace. Grace steps in when we are at our weakest, most vulnerable points. Would you agree with that? When we're strong, we get in the way of God's revelation of himself through us. What do I mean? You know, same thing I've just been talking about. What I've done, who I am, what I know. When we are weak and helpless and broken, and we're fit vessels to display his grace and power. That is just so contrary to the way that the human nature thinks. Principle five, another reason God allows suffering. To allow his power to be on display in our lives. You know what that does? That makes you a vessel of his grace. When God is on display in your life, when you're the weakest and most fragile and vulnerable, and yet God's power works through you and does something amazing, you become a vessel. His power is on display, not yours. Therefore, verse 9, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me, he says. Verse 10, for the sake of Christ, then I am contented with weaknesses, insults, 
hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. (laughs) When we realize that all we are and all we have and all we ever hope to be all depends upon the grace of God and the power of God, we are prepared to receive the joy that comes with suffering for Christ. That's what Paul did. Jesus didn't enjoy suffering. He didn't enjoy being on the cross. He didn't enjoy all the attacks and the insults and the hair pulling and the spitting. He didn't enjoy any of that physically. But he had great joy in the midst of it because he knew it accomplished his father's purpose and would be temporary. He kept his sights on the future. We got to do the same thing, folks, as the bride of Christ. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, what is that? That's his bride with him in heaven. That's you and I, face to face with him, intimately in heaven. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So here we are, Emmanuel Baptist in Kinston, North Carolina. 21st century, assembled together here to worship our God of grace, who by Jesus Christ has called us out for his name's sake. As the bride of Christ, our challenge is the same today as it was back then in Paul's day. We're fighting a spiritual battle that requires a commitment to the truth and the authority of Scripture. We're fighting for our personal and corporate survival against everything that Satan is hurling at us. Satan will not pass up this opportunity like uh, like this to sow seeds of doubt and frustration you can be sure he's going to interject it he will try to seduce the church into using its own resources of reason logic and physical assessments to determine the future of the church without praying and trusting the bridegroom for guidance and direction in many ways i'm like paul here in this story i'm afraid for the church I'm not talking about just this church, but I'm afraid for the church. I am jealous for the church, and I feel so inadequate. I feel so weak to even speak to the church on behalf of Christ because I know me. Yeah, C.S. Lewis said it. God's trying to get our attention. His megaphone of pain right now in our recent loss of a godly spiritual leader It's painful to most of us because we didn't really see this coming with a lot of notice. You know, but that's the way God works. He doesn't send out the email notices, the text messages ahead of time before he sends the trial and the test and the pressure. Otherwise, it wouldn't really have the desired effect of testing the authenticity of our faith. I believe C.S. Lewis was right. We are so hard-headed and stubborn that sometimes the only way God can get our attention is through his megaphone of suffering and loss. So how will you and I respond to this? Will we humble ourselves in acknowledgement that we are empty-handed without solutions or suggestions but are begging that the Lord will do for us what we can't do for ourselves? Will we pray for his will to be done in us personally and in this church at Emmanuel? 
or will we seek to get our wills done at all cost? Is God's grace really sufficient enough? Are we content with Christ alone and his grace, or is there more on our want list? Billy Graham's daughter wrote a book, Just Give Me Jesus. Take the world, but just give me Jesus. Is he enough? Is he enough for you, for me? Do you need more than Jesus? Are we willing to trust that God's power, mainly for his glory, is best seen in our weakness? When we don't have all the answers and we don't know what to do or how to move forward or how to deal with the unknown future? Let me read you what the authoritative scripture says in answer to that question. Romans 8, Paul says it this way, verse 26 through 28. Likewise, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Holy Spirit is, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's the answer. Let's pray. Our Father, we recognize that we are called out by you, by your spirit, by the gospel. We're grateful for your presence. We're grateful for the insight we can glean on who you are and how you operate through the scriptures. We thank you for the Apostle Paul being so transparent here. His heart, his concern, his jealousy for the church. God, help us to have that same zeal and enthusiasm for your bride. I don't know what's going to happen, Lord. I, will not, I do not even want to guess what's going to happen. But I know you're an almighty God. You are a great and awesome God, full of grace and mercy. And you're jealous over your bride, the church. And you said you would build it. And the gates of hell would not prevail against it. I don't think you were talking about a building or organization. I think you're talking about the people who are called out by your name. Called out by Christ for your glory. God, in our weakness, help us to be dependent upon you. To draw closer to you. To humble ourselves and recognize that in you alone we have strength to move forward. We pray this to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.